According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me back in Philippians again. We've concluded our study Wednesday night. Did we not? We concluded our study Wednesday night on calls to the ministry. Oh, we did not conclude Wednesday night on calls to the ministry, did we? Okay. Well then, we'll wrap that up and uh, finish that this morning and then be prepared for uh, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Wow, I'm totally ahead of everything because I was ready to jump in to live as Christ and die as gain. All right, well, tell you what, we've got to wrap up our study from Wednesday night then on calls to the ministry. We have to have a heavenly perspective, and if we don't have a heavenly perspective, then uh, we're going to fall short in the plan of God. So, uh, yes, we want to return to that as well. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we're in fellowship, that we have the right notes to teach from, and uh, whatever else is going to happen here this morning. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing we have this morning to assemble together. We call upon your faithfulness, Father, to, to uh, lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake, to open the eyes of our understanding, to teach us. We thank you for the word of God, that uh, the blessings of your truth are not dependent upon our uh, intelligence or our ability to figure these things out. Father, it's not a matter of how smart we are to, to learn these things. It's a matter of how faithful you are to teach us these things. And so, Father, as you display infinite faithfulness, we likewise want to display faithfulness. We want to walk by faith. We want to receive what you are supplying. So, Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for teaching us in this regard. And uh, we're excited now for the truth that you have. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so our study on calls to the ministry then. Let me pull that up. I no longer have a shortcut on my desktop because I sent it to the recycle bin. Let's restore that. Good thing I don't empty my recycle bin but every five years, so that's good news. Calls to the ministry. All right. And so uh, Roman numeral three was our introduction. Roman numeral two was our development. Uh, these tend to be my basic outlines for any topical study that we do. Uh, in the development, we had uh, three areas of development. Uh, principles of ministry calling, there were five of those. Uh, under point B, we looked at illustrations of ministry calling, and there were also five of those. And then under point C, we had the dangers and warnings of ministry calling, and there were seven of those, seven principles related to the dangers and warnings of ministry calling, including the seventh and, and most frightful of all is not finishing the course. That is, um, dropping out, failing, leaving, uh, abandoning uh, the race. Uh, there's a race set before you and believers decide, you know what, I'm done. That's it. I've done enough. And so they stop as if they have the authority to do that, <laughs> as if they can sovereignly choose to overrule the plan of God for their uh, gifts, their ministries, and their effects. And so not finishing the course is a, is a tremendous uh, sadness in uh, in that respect. And I think that these principles, these closing principles will be useful to keep that from happening, especially the, the heavenly perspective. When you are fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and when you are uh, focused on heavenly realities, then that serves to uh, to spur us on. That serves as a goad to keep us from losing heart, to keep us from falling short, to keep us from suffering shipwreck with respect to our faith. All right? And so really two summary points of conclusion. We spent uh, much time already on point A, the fact that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So uh, you cannot throw it away. You cannot uh, decline. <laughs> if, I mean, you can, volitionally speaking. But you face the consequences for doing that. All right? The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, Romans eleven twenty nine. We may fail and be disqualified for a season, but remember, 
If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Okay? And I claim that, I claim that daily. That's a, that's a powerful eternal security passage, but it's also a powerful uh, encouragement to ministry passage that uh, he cannot deny himself. Christ is in you, the hope of glory. And this is what we have to, uh, to move forward. So even if and even when we do fail and when we are disqualified for a season, however long that season may be, when repentance takes place, then restoration is required. All right? It must happen. And uh, to restore such a one is the, uh, always the objective. And so we have the principles there from 2 Corinthians 2, from Galatians 6, from James 5. When you turn a, a sinner from his ways, you, then you have uh, uh, covered for the multitude of sins. Reaching forward is always expected. Philippians 3, verses 12 through 14, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. All right? We taught that on Wednesday? We looked at Philippians? All right. But we didn't do B yet. All right. Somebody tells me maybe you were sleeping on Wednesday night. Did I teach this on Wednesday night? See, I don't listen to myself. Yes, we did. Because we talked about the heavenly calling. We talked about the reward. We talked about, I know for a fact, we read 1 Peter 5, 4, the elders among you shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not uh, voluntarily, not according to, uh, yeah, yeah, we did that. We did 1 Peter 5. While the field of service is earthly, the calling is heavenly. And so we want to keep our focus heavenly. Colossians 3.1, fixing your eyes on Jesus. And, and that's actually uh, from Hebrews chapter 12 as well, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And so if I'll just slap uh, Hebrews 12.1 on there while I'm here. This uh, is so useful for us. Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. See, he's the forerunner. He's the herald. He's not the herald, but he's the prototype. See, Colonel Theme called him the prototype of the, of the church age, right? He set the example for each one of us to imitate. And guess what? He did not fail to finish his course. He finished his course. And how did he do that? Well, the same way we, we're going to do it, by fixing our eyes on the things above. And he, uh, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Don't you love that? Isn't that a beautiful principle? Because the cross was not a joy. He was on the cross, but still the joy was set before him, looking forward to what the cross would accomplish, looking forward to the plan of the Father, looking forward to what he would do in victory once this unpleasant task was tetelestai, complete. All right? You and I need to do the same thing. Instead of fixing on the problems that we're going through right now, whatever cross we happen to be bearing at the moment, whatever cross we happen to be nailed to at the moment, instead of fixating on the here and now and the, the, the negative aspect on it, we're, we should be rejoicing. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing and everything give thanks. If And we can do that as we look forward. So that's, uh, that's part of the blessing there as well. So All right. We did that on Wednesday and so we are done. All right, and I will put that back in the recycle bin. All right, and we will go back to Philippians. So, Philippians chapter 1, we're ready now for the third part of chapter 1. And uh, once we go past the salutation of verses 1 and 2, Philippians opens with a standard yet significant salutation, avoiding Paul's own apostolic office. Philippians does not start with Paul, an apostle. Most of his letters do. Uh, certainly with the Corinthians and others, he had to defend his apostleship, and so most of Paul's correspondence begins with Paul, an apostle. But the ones that don't start with Paul, an apostle, are the ones he's most intimate with, including Philippi, and I'm pretty sure it's First uh, and Second Thessalonians. I need to double-check that. 
Uh, in any event, a standard yet significant salutation, avoiding his apostolic office, yet spotlighting the overseer and deacon offices of every local church. And I enjoy this. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. This is a letter that's written to the congregation, to the members, to the flock of Philippi Bible Church. And oh yes, by the way, the overseers and deacons can also read it. <laughs> okay? And that's, uh, that's the order that he addresses this, uh, the recipients of this letter. Then the remaining sections of chapter 1 can be titled with marvelous memory verses, including, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That's uh, verses 3 through 11, and we spent a lot of time on those verses and dealt with uh, some of those strong finished principles, such as we were just discussing most recently in the calls to the ministry application, that uh, it's not the beginning of a good work that gets rewarded at the judgment seat of Christ, but how do you follow through with it? Do you finish that good work? Do you complete that good work? Because the Father designed it to be completed. And until it is completed, it's not perfected. Then uh, the middle portion of the chapter, verses 12 through 18, which is sometimes referenced as the occasion for writing section, uh, this section of the chapter centers on my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that's where we've been most recently detailing that uh, those materials. Uh, the fact that uh, his, the, his imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord or being persuaded by the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage, have been emboldened. Okay, And uh, everything we studied there on persuasion and, um, and courage to be emboldened uh, keep that in mind because we have more uh, boldness coming up in the third part of this chapter uh, where we are this morning. The chapter concludes with application both for Paul himself and for the Philippians to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's going to clue them in to what he's concluded, to what he's uh, 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 adopting in his own personal philosophy. This is his philosophy of ministry, is that to live is Christ and to die is gain. That matters of life and death are not serious. <laughs> that there are far more serious things that you and I have to deal with because to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is not the worst possible outcome of, of whatever scenario you're, you're terrified of. Okay, But failing our Savior that is something to dread. That is something to be fearful of because there are eternal consequences for such uh, rebellion uh, on our part if we willfully depart from, uh, from God's course. So this is how the chapter concludes and this is what we're going to start with here this morning, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So if you recall, we got down through verse 18 in the exposition, but we only read half the verse. And because the conclusion is rejoicing when he says, what then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. All right? And that's where we stop. We stopped, we put a paragraph division there in the middle of verse 18. Uh, there is a second rejoicing in that verse when he repeats it, when he says, yes, and I will rejoice. Okay? And with, starting with that second rejoicing, starting with that uh, repetition, uh, is where I prefer to place the paragraph break. It's where I prefer to place, remember originally manuscripts didn't have punctuation and didn't have breaks between words and didn't have uh, breaks between sentences and things of that nature. So there is a bit of an art to, uh, to versifying and, and uh, outlining a sentence and structuring a paragraph. Um, I prefer to put the paragraph break in between the two rejoicings of verse 18. In fact, the New American Standard adopts the same thing when it uh, indents the yes and I will rejoice. Uh, and then uh, takes you into verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, see, that's the boldness we're going to deal with again. We, we dealt with boldness already with the, the uh, crowd that was emboldened to preach uh, Christ during Paul's imprisonment. He wants to make sure that he now has his own boldness 
moving forward. So according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay? Whether by life or by death, and Paul doesn't much care. Either way. Okay? The, the, the issue is not whether it's life or death, that's extraneous. He wants to glorify Christ. And if he doesn't glorify Christ, that's his shame, see. And he's praying and he wants the Philippians to join him in these prayers that he will not be put to shame in anything. And that's uh, what introduces the whole uh, section then that follows. And then the explanation in verse 21, for uh, to me, this is my personal uh, conviction, my personal um, philosophy of ministry. He does say, to me, and so that then is left to the rest of us to adopt, to get on board, to, uh, to personalize this application as well. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Okay? It's not presented as an absolute statement as if that's uh, what everybody thinks, but that's what Paul thinks. And it's taught in this way so that we adopt it ourselves, so that this becomes the way that we think, all right? And if we have a different uh, attitude, God himself will, uh, will show that to us. So this is uh, what we start with, all right? But first of all, the rejoicing. Remember we taught Cairo and Kyrie as a dominant theme in the book. Paul's present rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. The break between paragraphs is the break between the two verbs, Cairo, to rejoice. And the first use, you might remember, is in the present tense. Paul's in in jail, he's looking around, and what does he presently see? He's presently in jail, he presently sees believers that are persuaded and emboldened to preach Christ. And so even though a group of them are, are poorly motivated, a group of them are actually carnal in what they're doing, nevertheless... They're preaching Christ. So at the very least, he's thankful for that. And if nothing else, since Christ is being preached, Paul will rejoice in the fact that Christ is being preached. So it's a present rejoicing. And this is what it is. Present tense rejoicing, which gives way to future tense rejoicing. The present tense rejoicing assures him of a future rejoicing. All right. And so um, the two uh, uses of the verb there in verse 18, in this, in this, okay, very specifically, this is the, the set of circumstances he's describing with these believers and their wrong motivation. Nevertheless, in this, I rejoice, okay? And we need to learn to do the same thing. If we're going to rejoice always, there might be something that itself is not joyful, but we find whatever perspective that God has that allows us to rejoice even in the things that are not good, the things that work together for good, right? Which is everything. So we're able to pray without ceasing. We're able to in everything give thanks and we're able to rejoice always, see, even in the things that themselves may not be biblical or right or good. Um, in, in, uh, in this case, uh, satanic motivation is not a good thing. Uh, but he's still rejoicing, see. Present rejoicing assures him of future rejoicing. And um, that too, I think, is, is useful for us to consider as well. If, uh, if, uh, if, if there's a test that's coming up, if there's a, a, a thing that, that you're anticipating already and you know, boy, when that gets here, that's going to be horrible, or boy, when that happens, you know, you're already dreading a future eventuality. I'm not sure why, but we all do, <laughs> okay? We're human, I guess. Uh, we're supposed to be living daily, I get that. Nevertheless, there's still something we know, okay, I'm living daily, but boy, there's a day that's coming, okay? So how am I going to deal with that when that day comes? Well, I think this is our secret. Let's start rejoicing now. Let's rejoice now. Let's be thankful now. Let's testify to the faithfulness of God now. And I'm going to do that today, and I'm going to do that tomorrow when tomorrow becomes today. I'm going to do that the day after tomorrow when the day after tomorrow becomes today. And day after day, I'm going to be in the will of God uh, fulfilling these, these imperatives. So when that other day comes, whatever that is that I'm dreading, okay, whatever that, that uh, horrible thing I've, I've, been, I've been sweating and worrying about and, and fretting over, um, 
I can stop doing that right here, right now. Because whenever that doomsday finally arrives, whenever that day becomes today, I'm already in the process of rejoicing. This has been my pattern. This has been my walk. So present rejoicing uh, is an assurance for future rejoicing. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. I know for a fact that I'm going to rejoice. That's what I'm going to do. For I know, I presently know, and this is oida, it's a strong verb for knowing, okay? It's not, it's, not, it's not even, you know, when you think about gnosis and epinosis, and we've had some epigonosco applications already earlier in the chapter, this is more developed than any of that. This is actually the oida knowledge, whereby we have it in its fullness, we have it in its perfect, complete uh, expression. I know comprehensively that this will turn out for my salvation. Again, this, okay? And if you've ever uh, been bored by grammar, I'm going to bore you again this morning. This, what is this? This is a demonstrative pronoun, (laughs) okay? This, it's like that, only closer, okay? This, and this, you say, why are you making a big deal about this? Because it's in this, he says, he's going to rejoice, Um, back to verse 18, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. And I know that this will turn out for my salvation, for my deliverance. So if this is Paul's salvation, aren't you at all curious what this is? Okay. This, not that, this. Okay. Have we had any change of context? Have we had any change of of scope? Have we gone on to a different... No, this is the same this that this has been. Okay? This in verse 19 is the same this in verse 18. This is what he is presently rejoicing in, and this is what he will rejoice in because of what it will turn into. What it will turn into. For I know, Oida that this, this, will turn out. This is what it's working towards. This is what it's going to end up being. His own salvation. His own deliverance. Phase one, phase two, phase three, two. Okay? Whether by life or by death. All right. Through your prayers... Well, if he knows it's going to happen anyway, why do they bother praying about it? Isn't it kind of a waste of time? If Paul knows that the the provision's there, why do they have to pray? It's just predetermined. Why bother praying? See? (laughs) Okay. Because he knows that the salvation comes through. The salvation comes through a mechanism, a vehicle. Your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. There's a lot of meat right here uh, just off the, off the starting block in uh, this expression. Um, first of all, Paul anticipates a salvation, a salvation that is not contingent with his life or death. Paul is anticipating a soteria, okay? And uh, we've had this as a word study before. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. I, I could draw some pictures again for you. I don't mind that. But uh, soteria, S-O-T-E-R-I-A, it's a feminine noun, soteria, number 4991 is the strongest concordance number. It's used 45 times in the New Testament, just this noun by itself. It comes from the verb sozo, which I don't know how many times that's used, it's used hundreds of times I'm sure, sozo, and then soteria. And this is the, the Greek word that speaks of salvation, it speaks of why we have the doctrine of soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. Anytime you're going to study salvation, you're doing a soteriological study. And he anticipates a salvation. And this hopefully allow, we can relax about it because we've been well taught many, many times. Uh, I hope to teach it you know, a thousand more times to where you're so sick of hearing it, you can teach it yourself in your sleep. Okay? And uh, you ought to be solid enough on it to, to recognize that sozo is used in a bunch of different ways. And, and we're not making up ways to use sozo because sozo itself is used 
in these ways. Let me get back to my desktop here and start up my little clicker deal. Sometimes my pen falls asleep. Where is OneNote? Here we go. That's not it. In fact, I probably have already drawn this. At least once. Go back through my old notes. Nope. Oh, well, it's just easier to make a new one. How about that? Let's just make a new note. All right. So saved. Either the verb to save or the noun salvation or anything related to this concept. Okay? Even the adjective. Uh has these scopes, at least two, at least three, at least four, and I think I'm going to find a fifth and, and probably break some new, um, some new theological ground with it. Uh, but in any event, the problem is, is people only think of the first one, okay? The first idea of being saved is to uh, receive eternal life, Right? This is the, the one that everybody thinks of first because this was our introduction to Christianity. This was our introduction to the Bible, our introduction to, to being saved. Was that somebody told you that Jesus died on the cross and you learned about uh, sin, you learned about going to hell and you didn't want to go to hell or whatever the, the case might be. All right, There was good news preached. And to you, that was good news. All right, And so you believed in Jesus Christ and you got saved. Okay, and that's the easiest. That's the easiest to preach. But out of the forty-five uses that soteria is used, how many apply here, and how many don't apply here? See, and that's a that's a fruitful project. I haven't done the numbers on it. Kevin's working on it, and, and look forward to seeing what he does on this. Okay, but then there are other developments of save. This one clearly can't be. You think Paul's an unbeliever here? When he says, boy, I know that if you, if you guys just pray hard enough, all of this, I'm going to get saved one of these days. <laughs> okay? No, that's ludicrous. All right. So we have this second aspect. And we call these, um, and I don't really like it, but sometimes we call it phase one, phase two, phase three. Okay? Some, um, and I'm fine. I guess I'm fine with that. I'd prefer maybe other expressions. But the first main usage of the term is this one. Now, the second main usage of this term doesn't it refers to people that are already redeemed, already born again, but we still have to be delivered from sin. Specifically, the power of sin, all right? From specific sin temptations. And so here in the first aspect, we're saved from the penalty of sin. That's no longer an issue. In fact, that's eternally removed. The wages of sin is death, gone, done. That's removed. I never again do I have to worry about the wages of sin is death. That penalty, Christ paid that penalty on the cross. So the penalty of sin is dealt with in this first phase, this first aspect of, of saved. But now in the second aspect, there still remains the power of sin. It still is very much alive. Inside each one of us is that no good thing. And it has a power, and it wants us to do all these things. And so we have individual temptations, and we have whatever, okay, right? I mean, I knew from the youngest of ages that I was a sinner. There was no question about that. Parents would say, don't do this, and I wanted to do it, okay? And uh, no, cookie jars off limits. You're going to spoil your dinner. And, uh, you know, so you, you find a way to, you send a sibling in to distract mom, and then with, she's out of the kitchen, okay? You can sneak in the other way and get to the cookie jar and, and whatever, okay? Um, well, when that temptation comes to lie, cheat, steal, fornicate, whatever it is, you, there's a temptation and there's a power in that temptation and you may submit to it or you may be saved. That is the Word of God, the Holy Spirit that indwells you, other provisions God has made for us to not sin. And when we uh, grab a hold of that rope or that life vest or that flotation, whatever the case may be, we grab hold of that, we are saved. That's why in the book of James it says, with humility receiving the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. And this is what we call phase two salvation, delivered from sin, 
uh, personal sins. Okay, personal sins, the power of personal sins, the power of temptations, things of that nature. Then there is another deliverance or saved or rescue from um, physical danger. A ship is about to sink or a city is about to be conquered or a, a lion is about to eat you. Okay, Dan gets thrown in the lion's den and he got saved that night. Okay, it wasn't the night that he became a believer, received eternal life. And it wasn't a saving from personal sins, although maybe that happened also, I don't know. But clearly he was rescued from physical danger. He was saved. He was delivered. The the three children were delivered from the fiery furnace. They were saved from a physical danger. All right. There's also, actually I'm I'm out of order because that usually gets numbered number four. Yeah. As long as I'm teaching a doctrine that I didn't develop, I should at least keep it in the same order. Danger rescues. All right, the third one is when we are actually saved from this fallen world, when we go to heaven. And this is uh, usually referenced as phase three salvation. Again, I didn't develop this doctrine. Uh, many pastors before me, systematic theologies and so forth, have observed that sozo and soteria, the, the soteriological vocabulary, uh, is applied in all these different realms. But going to heaven is spoken of as a salvation. We are rescued from the presence of sin. Penalty, power, and presence is how it's usually taught. Because you're absent from the body, you're now face to face with Jesus Christ, and that no good thing which has been with you ever since you were physically born, for the first time ever, it's gone. (laughs) Okay? Because it got buried when the corpse got buried. And it didn't go to heaven when your soul spirit was carried up to, to be face to face with Jesus Christ. And so not only are you face to face with the Lord, but every shred of sin is gone. What a joy is that? And the Bible will use sozo and soteria and the, the, the soter, uh, soteros terminology uh, for that aspect as well. Then uh, the danger rescues are spoken of there. Uh, there's a fifth use uh, that applies to Israel. All Israel will be saved. All right. This speaks of, uh, really it's, an, it's a national application of number four because they're going to be nationally rescued from Antichrist and the tribulational armies, and they're going to be nationally brought into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so there is a national uh, military political rescue for the Jewish nation. And then the one I hope to add someday is an, express, is an expansion of that for the church. Because uh, the rapture of the church gathers all the body of Christ, all the bride of Christ, and doesn't deliver us into the millennial kingdom like Israel gets delivered into the millennial kingdom, but all the bride of Christ is going to be delivered into the fullness. And so that takes us into the new heavens and new earth and the fullness. So stay tuned. This will be my contribution to Western Christendom when, uh, when we get that far. All right, so we're clear on the different kinds of saved, what we mean by saved, all right? Uh, as far as, now when we talk about that, when we say there are you know, three phases or four uses, things like that, we're not saying there's different kinds of ways to get saved, okay? Not saying that at all. As far as that number one salvation, there is one and only one way to get saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. For phase one salvation, if you're talking about receiving eternal life, uh, being transferred out of the domain of darkness and being delivered into the kingdom of His beloved Son, if that's what you're talking about in saved, then Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Right? We're clear on that? Okay. So phase two, phase three, those are aspects of salvation that apply in other contexts. So, Paul anticipates a salvation, that he's going to be saved. And so then the question is, since we've already agreed unanimously that the context of this passage is not talking about Paul becoming a believer or Paul uh, receiving eternal life, okay? That happened in Paul's childhood. 
We're talking about phase two salvation here, whereby he's going to be delivered from... Well, no, wait a minute. I guess we should consider whether it's phase two or phase three or phase four. Is he just talking about being rescued from physical harm? Is that what he's talking about? He says, I know that through your prayers I'm going to be saved from a physical harm. I'm not going to be thrown to the lions. Well, we know that he faced lions in Ephesus. Okay? But you might be tempted to take it that way until you read whether by life or by death. Oh. So as soon as you read that last phrase, whether by life or by death. So I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. Um, You get down through this and then at the end of verse 20 it says, whether by life or by death. So this can't be the kind of salvation where he's talking about being rescued from danger. Because he says danger is very much still on the table. It's very much still an option. When he's writing Philippians, this could be the last thing he ever writes. That, that This could result in his physical death. So when he says that I will be saved, he says I, am, I know, I am persuaded, I, I believe, or I know, Oida, I know that this will turn out for my salvation. This, Christ being preached, by the good crowd and the bad crowd, Christ being preached, the, the gospel being magnified, the work being multiplied, that is what's going to turn out for Paul's salvation through their prayers and through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we'll deal with that also. Paul knows, so this is a salvation that's not contingent with his life or his death. Isn't that great? That is absolutely great. That, what that tells you is that the spiritual work that God is calling you to do is not contingent upon circumstances and details. It is not contingent. It is only contingent upon the will of God. Has the Father assigned it? Are you obedient to it? Are your fellow believers praying in support of it? Well, then there you go. Okay? Whether by life or by death or whatever else happens in, in secular circumstances, that's just details. That's just details. Don't confuse. See, and this is what happens. Believers allow their circumstances to veto their obedience. And they say, well, Lord, I would do this, but, you know, whatever. I've got to first go bury my father. I, I, gotta, I just bought a field. I, gotta, I just broke in a new, I've got to break in a new pair of oxen. I've got to, um, I just married a wife. I've got to break her in, or whatever the, you know, the case may be. Uh, they've got... Um, circumstances and details that believers allow to veto obedience to the will of God. Say, well, I thought this was going to result in my salvation, but doggone it. (sighs) Sorry to say, Lord, just can't do it. You know what that is? That's an encumbrance. And we're commanded to lay aside the encumbrances and the sins and everything that would hinder us from running with endurance the race that's set before us. So whether by life or by death, that's, that's irrelevant. It's not contingent, see. Incontingent? Is there an adjective for incontingent, not contingent? It is independent, um, totally unrelated to life or death. Paul knows that the Philippians' corporate prayer support will sustain him. Paul knows that the Philippians' corporate prayer support will sustain him. And this prayer support becomes the logistical supply through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All right, we've got to chew on that a little bit. Paul knew that the Philippians' corporate prayer support, when he says, through your prayers, what's he talking about here? Your is plural, prayers is plural. This is the saints in uh, Philippi, including, by the way, overseers and deacons, they, they, they're allowed to attend prayer meeting, if you didn't know that. Okay? The saints, he's saying here, the prayers of the saints become the logistical grace supply. They become the, the uh, well, we're going to see in the, in the joints and marrow, that which every joint supplies, they become the bone marrow, they become the, the provision 
And we'll see how this works here because I think we have these beautiful uh, links with not only Philippians but Ephesians 4.16 and Colossians 2.19. We have here a supply. It's rendered, it's translated as provision. So prayers and provision. And I'm fine with that. I like provision or supply. But if, if, if you're an alliteration nerd then you want to do prayers and provision or you want to do supplication and supply or you want to do you know, something like that, just to convey it um, in that way. So this is going to turn out for my salvation through, by means of, through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All right. And so this is what happens. The prayers themselves become the provision through the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So we have an and there that's taking two things. Really the first thing becomes the second thing as these uh, come across. Alright? Did you follow that? So through, it seems there's an and in there. There's different kinds of ands. There's ands that separate two different things. Then there's ands that can link two different things and say it's the same thing. Pastors and teachers. Okay? Is one thing. Pastor teachers, for example. Because we have apostles, then prophets, then evangelists, then pastors and teachers. Okay, And that's the kind of and that links them together, that connects them together. I think something similar is happening here. That it's through, and the through is the prayers and the provision. But the prayers create the provision. The prayers are the expression of love that supplies that provision. And you'll see what I mean as well. Ephesians 4.16. Ephesians 4.16. And I have to back up just a little bit so that you see. This is how a a church works together. This is uh, what we're called to do. Each one of us has a gift and we're all different, but we all work together. And we all bless one another. And it says uh, in verse 11, He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Okay, And we link that, that, uh, those two together as one item, the pastor teachers, because there's only four some ases. Right? Um, and notice, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so this is why you can't just be saved and then sit at home and grow. You've got to be part of a body. You've got to be equipped. You've got to be functioning within a local church. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. So individually we're all growing up, right? But collectively the church is growing up. Collectively, the entire bride of Christ is growing. The body of Christ is growing. And the body of Christ is not mature yet. Jesus is not going to marry His bride until she's mature. Make sense? All right. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So how mature is that? You think you're there yet? (laughs) Okay. Individually, do you think you're there yet? What about collectively? Okay. Is the body of Christ, have we reached the fullness yet? No, because when that happens, we'll be raptured out of here. When that happens, when we are prepared for the fullness, then we'll get, and we'll see this next hour, by the way, the, 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 the link between fullness and the bride with Christ that takes us into the new heavens and new earth. So um, as a result, we are no longer to be children. When you get a grasp on the plan of God, you realize, okay, it's time to grow up. Let's get on board with His plan and program. Let's just quit, you know, dinking around. We've got, the time is just too short. Beyond, obviously rewards were thrown away, beyond any of that is the, the eternal consequences that I am being suited for my work assignment in the fullness of times. And if I keep dinking around, I'm, I'm not going to be ready for what I should be ready for. In fact, I may forsake things that I should be designed for. So I better be busy about it. 
So, no longer children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but truthing one another, truthing in love, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. So in the, in the mystical union of Christ and the church, Christ is the head and we are the body. And we don't want to be decapitated and He doesn't want to be de bodified, okay? We, we're going to be together with a head and a body and this happens at the rapture and then following the wedding supper we return to earth and we're ready for everything then that follows. But now notice very in this now, verse 16, from whom from whom the whole body being fitted and held together, what is it that links the body together? What is it? Why, why does your arm not fall off tomorrow? Why, why does your why why what holds your body together? What are the ligaments and joints that hold your body together? The whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. Okay, and here it is. Prayer meeting. We were talking about an ankle joint and how the ankle joint works and how it. I talked to Kathy after class. She'll describe it better. Okay, but. That's, you know, biologically speaking, what we're talking about with our bones and our muscles and our ligaments and our joints. And guess what? As they fit together properly, if they fit together the way they're supposed to fit together, things are great. If they don't fit together the way they're supposed to fit together, well, then it hurts. There's pain. You got to replace the knee, replace the hip, or, or whatever. You got to scope something with, with scopy, okay? You got to clean it up. You got to scrape the spurs off of different things. All right. And that's what God's doing right now. You and I are growing, and what, what, what's happening is the bone spurs are getting scraped off. The, the, the burrs and the spurs and the, the, the little things that are keeping the joints from working the way the joints are supposed to work. And then there comes the, the supply. And what is it that gets supplied? What's the, well, the scripture calls it marrow, right? The joints and marrow. And so what is that marrow? What keeps everything lubricated? What keeps everything all, what keeps everything all smooth and loose and, and uh, not painful? <laughs> You've got to be well lubricated, right? Go get, uh, you know, it's like the oil change for your uh, vehicle. All right. And this is what we're talking about this morning in Philippians 1. Through their prayers. Through their prayers, the body of Christ gets an oil change. Through the prayers of the saints, then the joints are being supplied. The joints are being supplied so that you don't have bone on bone. You don't have friction. What is it that keeps believer A from punching the lights out of believer B? The Holy Spirit. Okay, Specifically, the grace of God when two believers are growing in the Word of God when the Spirit is, is supplying that which every joint supplies, okay? It's a beautiful thing. So held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All right, so you've got a verb in there for supply, what every joint supplies, and that supply we have back in our passage this morning the, through the provision, through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Okay? That provision through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, where does it come from? It comes from the flock. It comes from believers. It comes from local assemblies. And if you decide to become Joe Hermit Christian and dump church altogether, or if you start to diminish your appetite for teaching, uh, what you're diminishing is the, that which every joint supplies. And it's far more than just the content, the information of what the pastor is disseminating, because that's only one man and one gift. You're actually cutting yourself off from dozens, from hundreds of believers and their giftedness and that which every joint supplies. Because, you know, when you, when you talk about the, those connections, we're connected with everybody. That's, that's why the metaphor almost breaks down at some point because you know the proper working of each individual part um, and you sing dim bones and you work your way up from the foot bone up to the ankle bone, the, you get up to the head bone and it's, it's kind of a fun song for 
kids or gospel quartets or something. But um, but the, but the thing is, if you're on a human skeleton, the foot bone is not connected to the head bone. There's a whole lot of other links in between, right? But in the body of Christ, the foot bone is connected to the head bone. We're all connected to Christ. Christ is the head. See how that works? And so the whole body is connected to one another body. And it's, it's, it's hard to visualize because there's no earthly example of this. There's no earthly example where every member of your body is connected to every other member of your body. How would that even work? Okay, But you and I are connected as a part of this lampstand, as a part of this flock. There, is, there should not be any member of this flock you're not connected to. If there's a disconnect, if there's a break, that's a problem. Because the joint there, that link, that ligament between that part of the body and you is designed to supply something. Is designed to be a supply. You want to be clear on this. So, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. The body builds itself. Okay, the body builds itself, and that's so it's kind of fun. The news figures it out, science figures it out, they, they make some great discovery and someone wins a Nobel Prize for some kind of a thing. And then uh, you, you, you think, really? Didn't the Bible say that 4,000 years ago? <laughs> wow, you mean the body builds itself. No kidding. Okay? But they're all excited about you know, the neat things they can start doing with stem cells now. And, um, it's, uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm amazed. I'm thrilled. It could benefit me someday, so yeah, learn more, please. But, but, you know, whatever you're learning is just a glimpse into what the Father designed from the foundation of the world. How fun is that? Because every, all that miracle, all that wonder used to be in the dirt. And then He shaped Adam, and then here we are. Colossians. Colossians 2.19, very similar to Ephesians. Maybe a slight. That's very similar. All right. Um, But it's coming in a different context. It's not coming from the aspect of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers. It's um, coming in. uh, We we often say that Ephesians is more patrological, Colossians is more Christological. Uh, But here, I think the difference is more in in the sense of our own grace and our own freedom. We don't want anyone to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to fail in uh, abandoning grace and plunging into legalism. Things which are uh, a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. You and I are church age believers. We function in the substance, not the shadows. We function in the substance. That's why we walk by faith. It's the substance of things hope for, uh, the uh, things not seen. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. The thing is, if you decide to abandon grace and become a legalist, you are throwing away rewards left and right. The longer you spend in legalism, you're you're just chucking the awards. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. I'm not going to name names or point fingers, but there's plenty of illustrations. Our culture is filled with uh, these delightful people that are delighting in this self-abasement. And they're going to give up this, they're going to give up that, and oh, aren't they holy because of what they're giving up. Or uh, visions they've seen, or following the latest fad, or all the latest thing. No, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. And so you end up with a cult leader instead of a pastor. You end up with a, um, a terrible thing here. And the whole reason why is because they aren't holding fast to the head. See, if you're holding fast to the head, if you are fixing your eyes on Jesus, you can't become a legalist. How can you become a legalist? Looking at Jesus. 
the author and finisher of our faith. You know, the, the, the ultimate source of faith and grace and love and everything else. Are you connected to the head? There's no legalism in that. Not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied, there's the provision, there's the supply, and held together by the joints and the ligaments. Or what Hebrews calls the joints and the marrow. I think the marrow is the supply. The Holy Spirit is the oil, if you will. And that uh, keeps us well lubricated. Uh, but it's called the Spirit of Jesus. Okay? And that's important. Not the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And that's, uh, we'll discuss that perhaps as well. So not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. Okay? Isn't that something? You know, and, and, and unlike other bodies, what, what, uh, what does the head produce in the human body? You know, if, if uh, the, of course, the heart pumps the blood and the, the uh, you know, you got other organs, the, the gallbladder, uh, you got other organs that produce things, okay? The spleen produces whatever. Um, you, uh, okay, I'm scraping. But the, what does the head produce besides crazy ideas? <laughs> ah, best of all. What does the head produce? Is it, is it a pump for something? Is there something that the, 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 the head, electrical signals, thinking? Ah, okay. Christ is the head. And what comes from the head? For the body of Christ, everything. Because we're connected to the head. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. If we're not abiding in Christ, how do, how do we bear any kind of fruit? Okay? All right. So, this is what Paul is anticipating. Paul's anticipating a rescue. Paul's anticipating that through this, through the, the um, let's just call it the Civil War evangelism endeavors <laughs> of the good crowd and the bad crowd, okay, through the expansion of the gospel ministry, particularly through the bad guys that are trying to cause Paul distress. Well, guess what? He's not distressed. He's been saved from that distress. He's, he anticipates that he will be saved from that distress. That, that future anticipated salvation then is going to cause him to rejoice all the more. And it's going to come about through the Philippians' prayers. Their prayers are in like-mindedness, on board with his prayers. How powerful does that become? All right. Well, what's he going to be saved from? He's going to be saved from being put to shame. Paul's expectation and hope for this salvation is to not be put to shame in anything. And that's what we'll pick up on Wednesday night. To not be put to shame. Worse than death. Matters of life and death are secondary. Brush that off the table. Don't even think about it. That's just an external thing. Whether by life or by death. Paul says he does not want to be put to shame. And um, if, if living means no shame and Christ is, uh, is glorified, then that's the circumstance he's going to ask for. But if dying, what if living is, is a shameful thing? What if in living he, he is brought distress? He does deny the Lord. He does fail. He does um, succumb to the things he's, he's concerned with, with that bad crowd and they're causing him distress. What if living takes him there well then he'd rather not live he'd rather die so that in his death he can exalt christ he does not want to be put to shame he wants to exalt christ and we'll uh, we'll discuss that that uh, paradox or that that contrast wednesday night lord willing and rapture pending because to be put to shame is uh, is unthinkable yeah, for one that comes to this mindset that to live is christ and to die is gain the idea of being put to shame is, is not just personal. If I'm put to shame, you know what that means? I put my Savior to shame. That means I discredited the beloved Son, the one that the Father is, is magnifying for all eternity. God the Father's plan is to exalt and magnify Christ for all eternity, and I put Him to shame by putting myself to shame. That's what is the, the unthinkable thing, and that's why Paul is delighted to be, to be saved to be rescued from such an unthinkable um, 
eventuality. All right. Father, I thank you for this morning and I thank you for um, this final uh, section of chapter one. I'm eager to see uh, how you work in it, how you provide, uh, Father, the way that uh, this information can come alive and, and impact each one of us, each one of us individually and all of Austin Bible Church collectively, Father. How is it that we can be um, uh, embracing this perspective that to live as Christ and to die as gain and that to discredit Christ, to, to bring shame upon Christ is worse than, uh, than uh, these other alternatives. And Father, we'd rather die. We'd rather not be here. If, uh, if our continued presence here is dishonoring to our Lord, then take us home. Father, um, but we want to glorify our Savior however you so choose. So I thank you, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All righty. Fellowship.